my friend Marla Hare Griffin, DaleWileyShow.com. There we go. We are recording. And so today, after making a short appearance on my uh, interview with Lance Rock, I'm now talking to Marla Griffin Hare, or Marla Hare Griffin. <laughs> and let's start by saying, how did you first get interested in music? Oh, gosh. Um, which music, you know? Um, I mean, I, I grew up with with uh, pop radio on in the car with my mom and, you know, church music and um, all that sort of stuff. I, I If you're talking about um, rock and new wave and all that stuff that was going on in the 80s, that was really um, probably when I was 15. Okay. Um, I had a group of friends that we, we loved to hang out at street side and, uh, you know, you just start flipping through the bins and checking stuff out. Right. And one thing leads to another. So. And it was cool to hear how you first got introduced to Cicero's. And so tell me about that. Tell me about getting on to Cicero's. Yeah. Well, um, that show we talked about Hugo Largo, that was probably in, uh, 19, oh, Um, so it was another five years before I started booking bands there. I started right. working there in 1991. Right. Started booking bands in 93. Um, I, uh, yeah, and you know that that show really was a a turning point for me. That Hugo Largo show because I had never been to a show in a small venue, and you know I get down into this basement with a fake ID, and I've never seen anything like this before, you know. Um, and then to see a band like Hugo Largo, which is not just uh, not your average rock band, um, right? So. You know, and from there it was just exploring and getting into shows where I could and um, following friends to shows they thought I should see. Um, yeah, and then in uh, 91, I had been working out in St. Charles, and I, but I was living in right around Wash U in Des Moines, and mm-hmm. I was tired of driving to St. Charles. Right. Job. So, um, so I started poking around there and I remembered Cicero's and as it turns out, they needed somebody at the time. So for the first, uh, year and a half, I was the, the bar manager and, um, you know, just worked a lot of shows behind the bar. Right. And talk about those early shows that you saw that made depression. What were some of those? Oh, gosh. Um, This is a really tough, tough thing for me because (laughs) the number of band names in my head are, it's, you know. It's it's removed. It's gotten smaller. Let's say that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, There were just so many to begin with. I couldn't say the first um, 
first show I saw at Cicero's that um, that I was really into while I was bartending. I mean, so much of that time was just honestly, you know, I'm I'm working behind this bar. There's 150 people here who are thirsty. There's a band playing. I hear them. I like it, but I have to. Yes, you have to do your job. You know. I know, though, that when my first memory of knowing about Cicero's was that Heather Christ tried to get me into the Smashing Pumpkin show that never happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so do you remember that at all? Because that was before you were booking the place. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I remember that specifically. Um, I do remember that that show being canceled. Uh, yeah okay well let's talk about when you got to be the booking agent how different was that what a what did you face there because i know that lance already talked about it but you it was it was different to see you booking bands because you did it so differently than what it was done before well honestly um what i what i was trying or what I was hoping to do was, um, you know, there were so many bands touring at that time. Right. The heyday of, you know, touching skin grafts, sub pop, merge, matador. Right. Discord, all these wonderful labels putting out all these amazing bands. Um, and they're just, they're driving right past St. Louis. Right. To, to Memphis or Chicago to Kansas city and they're skipping over St. Louis. So my first, my first hope was to be able to get some of them to stop in St. Louis. Okay. Um, and I, the, the first thing I did um, was actually get in touch with um, some of the DJs at uh, KWR and have them give me a wish list of okay. bands they wanted to see come through St. Louis. And um, I still have those lists to this, this day. And a lot of those okay. bands ended up coming through. Um, but I'm I think, sure that was, you know, there was no way that I could know about every cool band that was out there or every band might do well. So, you know, I decided it was best to, to get some help from from people who were a little more tuned in, right? Than I was, um, and that's that's how I started off. And from there, it was um, I I don't I never really knew all the uh, history of what happened at various shows in St. Louis, but apparently there were there were times when. Um, bands had bad experiences here, and that's why a lot of agents weren't sending their bands through St. Louis anymore. Um, so a lot of what I did in the... I'm sorry? No, 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 go ahead. Yeah, so a lot of what I did in the beginning was trying to uh, convince those those agents um, that, you know, we were going to put on... We were going to promote the show. Right. Uh, we're going to pay the band what we promised to pay them. We're going to feed them, um, you know, and we'll do our best to make it a good show. And it, it wasn't easy at first. Um, 
And actually, Lisa Andrus at the High Point was actually working on the same kind of thing, you know, just trying to get these agents and labels to to trust us. Right. So. And we'll talk about what happened once it changed. What was the changing point? What was the, the point that you knew it was going to happen like this? Um, you know, I can, I, I don't think I can give you a date or even a year. Well, it was probably, probably in late 93 to early 94 that things really started rolling and, you know, the calendars were filling up, um, without me having to chase bands down. Right nearly as much, you know, by, by early 94, people were calling us. Um, and, and there was just a momentum that built from, yeah, from 90, early 94 through 96 until we closed in 97. Exactly. Yeah. And so let's talk for a minute about our friend, Mike Blake. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, I mean, he was just such a big part of that whole scene. And, you know, I just think that we need to make sure that we talk about him because he was so vitally important. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about Mike. Um, right. I, I had known Mike. Um, Mike and I grew up together. I'd known, known him since I was five years old. Um, also a child of Blackjack, Missouri. Right. Um, <laughs> For me. Um, he had been living in Florida for a few years with, with some other friends of ours. And he decided he was done with that and wanted to come back to St. Louis and didn't really have a plan for what to do. And I had just started managing the bar at Cicero's. So I I pulled him in immediately. He was a doorman at first. And um, then it took a while. And I don't remember exactly when I finally got him to cave um, to convince Sean, the owner, to let a guy attend bar. Really? Um, Yeah. He was was a little old-fashioned and just thought that uh, the bartenders should be women, which, you know, that's fine. But – I knew Mike would be great at it and I knew he would bring a lot of people in himself. So, um, and then from there, um, once I started booking the bands and was less able to do the day-to-day management of the bar, he took over that and then also helped me in the booking office immensely. Um, and those are some of, some of my favorite memories. Um, it's just the af- spending the afternoon in the booking office with Mike and usually one or two Wash U students and a friend or two and right going through demo tapes and faxes and promo packages and, you know, booking shows. And so he was, he was a special and he made, he made that time at Cicero's even more special. You really did. And, you know, I just think that that is one of the things that everybody needs to know because Mike Blake was as big a part of the scene as any band was. Oh, yeah, totally. Right. 
talk about the demo tapes and who you found and who got big and who you found through the demo pile. Yeah. Um, I don't, <clears throat> I honestly probably couldn't say if we ever discovered anybody through a demo tape. I don't think so. I think most of that, um, most of those discoveries came through um, a booking agent we had a good relationship with and they said, you know, you've got to check these guys out. Right. Uh, mind throwing them on a bill. Um, and of course, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of stuff in that business. So, right. Um, and that's how bands like, um, like modest mouse. Right. Came through, played, I I would guess they played at least a half a dozen times to almost no one. Right. Except staff. <laughs> and this, you know, after the first show, the staff was hooked. Right. Um, so we were all there, um, but nobody else was. Right. And here they are now. Um, you know, another, another one was Spoon. Um, right. Love them. Yeah, me too. But nobody... They they weren't uh, catching on in those early days, but we loved them. We kept booking them. Um, Tell me about the what happened with the cranberries because that one really blew up. Yeah, so that that show was actually on the books when I took over booking. It was already there. Um, Mark Benson had booked it, and. Uh, they had a thousand dollar guarantee. And when I, when I took over, Sean asked me to cancel it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because he didn't, uh, he didn't want to pay that guarantee. Uh-huh. So I not knowing, I didn't know anything about the cranberries yet to be perfectly honest. Right. Uh, so they I, called, big yet. right. Yeah. Exactly. So I called um, their agent John Brannigan at William Morris and said, Hey, I'm new at Cicero's. I need to cancel this show. And he said, uh, no, you can't (laughs) sign a contract. You're going to have to, you're going to have to go through with it. So I told Sean that and he bitched and moaned, but said, okay, fine. Well then, you know, two weeks later they were so huge that we had to add a second show and we sold out both of them. Right. Of course, John Brannigan, the agent got a good laugh out of that for many, <laughs> many months after that. <laughs> Deservedly so. Right. <laughs> you know, because it's kind of amazing how quick they could happen with the power of all those different channels coming together. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Cheryl Crow had a show booked at, Cicero's at one point. Right. Um, if I dug really deep through old calendars, I might be able to find it, but she blew up and they canceled because they, right. I think she went to Mississippi nights or something. I don't remember. Yeah. So yeah, it can happen in the blink of an eye. It sure can. And especially now, tell me what music you like now. Oh gosh. Um, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of stuck in my, uh, what would it be? Probably early 2000s 
mid 2000, mid, you know, 2005, 2010, uh, Queens of the Stone Age, um, desert rock stuff. That's what I, that's my go-to. Right. When I, when I don't know what else to listen to. Um, but I also have favorites like favorites that, that Lance introduced me to like everything but the girl and prefab spread and, you know, things that, uh, seemingly don't go with anything I listened to since then. Um, and I, I honestly, um, probably have not followed popular music in since my daughter graduated high school and right. I had no choice but to follow it then. <laughs> well, <laughs> before we get off the, let's remember to talk about when we, you and I and Victor went to the blue note to see one of the final shows of Uncle Tupelo and blue mountain. Yes. You remember yeah, that? that night. Oh, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, did we drive back that night? We did. We went there and went back the same yeah. night. Yeah. That was a great show. It was. And, uh, honestly, well, you know, for me, I never really got to watch Uncle Tupelo play. Right. I, you, If you were at those shows, you know how busy the bartenders were. Oh, yeah, totally. So, you know, that the privilege of being able to sit up in the balcony and actually watch the band play right uh, made it all that much better for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, blue mountain was good too, but I just remember spend that time. It was fun because Victor was fun too. It was always cool to hear what he had to say. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to have you on was just to talk about all the stuff you've done and what a big part you are in St. Louis music. Well, and thank you for coming on. Oh yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you, and I love it, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Okay. com. Do you love music? Do you know about the musical map of Missouri? Dallas Wayne, Chuck Berry, Dave Alvin, Robbie Folks, The Skeletons, The Ozark Mountain Daredevils, Uncle Tupelo, Wayne Carson, Nellie, Lou Whitney, Symptoms Morell, City, Jeff City, St. Louis, St. Joe, Columbia, Buckle of the Bible Belt, the Studio on South Avenue in Springfield, 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 Missouri. Add the Missouri Music Podcast to your list of favorites. Lawyer, author, and Slewfoot Records label owner Dale Wiley takes you on a musical trip around Missouri while raising funds for Musical Map of Missouri, a nonprofit organization which will help ensure Missouri musicians affected by COVID-19. Visit MissouriMusicPodcast.com for more information. Tune in to the Missouri Music Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.